completely out of ice. There we go. We're recording now. Okay. Well, I wanted to let you know that I found out, and first of all, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think it's really interesting, um, and it, especially there is such a stigma around cannabis still, it seems even in our society, people are still apt to believe what is pushed on them instead of, it almost seems as if the more we evolve in our society, the more we have dissolved. A lot of what we have been given on this earth, we have pushed aside in lieu of profit margin. That's my experience. It seems to me that things come in waves, right? You yes. Know, um, everything from the way we feel socially to um, information. And I feel like we're in a third wave of cannabis information right now. First, we had, you know, our historical antecedent in which people knew what they experienced from the earth around them and people lived much closer to the earth. Then comes the industrial revolution. And for a variety of reasons, um, we can talk about why prohibition took root during that era um, and continues to this day. To anyone who comments to me that we're going through some type of freedom associated with cannabis, I quash that right now. We're going through legalization. This is tight regulation, and this is our third wave, tight regulation of a plant that is innocuous, it should be a part of our food supply, should be freely traded, um, and, and instead at the government having heard uh, the outcry of the populace over the last 10 years demanding legalization rather than freedom um, has created a whole bunch of new laws. There's all kinds of examination into new science that has been uh, roundly uh, uh, discredited long ago is suddenly making um, a, a, a reappearance. And I think we can understand this as control. How can you let a substance as useful and as easily accessible as something that you could throw a couple seeds out and grow it in your own dirt at home, how can you let that invade the private world in a society in which the profit motive is above all, right? So looping back to your point, um, you know, in a world in which the fortune companies, the Fortune 10s, the Fortune 50s, the Fortune 500s, make our rules legislatively, how would we expect anything different? Well, you know, and as a matter of fact, I was doing uh, some research about origins of cannabis, and the closest thing that I could find to its early discovery was uh, 2800 BC in either Western uh, India or China or you know, Asia, where a lot of the uh, Indian cultures would use it for all sorts of homeopathic things for people that had um, either mental illness. Well, then again, that's a whole different story. I mean, going into something as far as mental illness, because I don't know how they, I don't know if they defined mental illness in certain facets like we do now, particularly. Um, and as a matter of fact, just on a side note, even in India still, schizophrenics are actually thought of as in between worlds. They are actually, it's just like elderly. They do not institutionalize them. They take care of them. It's part of their culture. Um, Imagine that. that. They, um, <laughs> in India, they would use it for arthritis. They would use it for people that had digestive issues, asthma, um, sinus infection, you name it, a whole bunch of homeopathic, homeopathic remedies. And they have even found evidence of, that it was even being used during biblical times. Absolutely. It's referenced in the Bible um, as a holy oil, a combination of olive oil, almond oil, cannabis oil. And there's another one in there. I believe it's for the scenting. It might be myrrh because it's very common. 
commonly referenced in the Bible. Um, a holy anointing and healing oil, right? Right there in the Bible. I mean, we don't even have to get too far into the Bible if, if you want to see the world in that way before we run across Genesis 1.16, where God tells us the operating instructions for our world, all of these plants, seed and fruit bearing are for you, for you to use, for you to, to benefit from. Uh, cannabis has always been here. There's now evidence from a tomb, I think it's 10th century BCE, uh, that is clearly um, an ancient noble person of some type. How do we know that? We know it by the way in which they're buried um, or entombed. And um, cannabis was found in a variety of ways there, both um, smokable cannabis in, in a pouch and with a pipe clearly indicating that they were going to inhale it um, and also tinctures and rubbing balms, right? Cannabis has always been here. The one thing that we can easily imagine is in a world in which every day is existential, right? Um, it, it, living was hard in those days. People did not turn their back on anything that was easily and readily available to them that was helpful for them. They exploited it. And hence, cannabis perseveres throughout our history, both written and the archeological record. As we continue to find more and more ancient sites and are able to analyze them and interpret them um, with some accuracy, we're gonna keep finding cannabis going back in the public you know, in our archaeological record. It's just well, You know, and as a matter of fact, one of the things that I have really become interested in is anthropology and the study of ancient belief systems, spiritual practices, etc. And I really believe that um, whether it's Native Americans, Indians, or even what they believe is the beginning of civilization, the Mesopotamians, um, they they utilized tools. This is pre-even psychology, you know, before we even had defining things for, you know, disorders, etc. Things were just dealt with and accepted the way that they were. And what I find interesting is that um, ba the ancient Chaldeans, Babylonians believed that humans operate on a frequency response. You know, you, whatever company you keep, that is the vibration that of which you are at at that time. One of the things that people use cannabis for is for treating anxiety, trauma, um, or if there is something genetic within them that they cannot help. And one of the things that I have read up on a lot of is, particularly for myself, since I have autism spectrum disorder, it very much correlates with um, emotional dysregulatory disorder or what they are used to, they are trying not to call borderline personality disorder. The amygdala is very overactive. And one of the problems with big pharma as opposed to cannabis, that is the part of the brain that is responsible for detox and withdrawal and addiction. Now, and it's also the part of the uh, of our brain that is more responsive to emotion, emotion receptors. Now, what I find very interesting is you studied, you, what is your, you have a bachelor's or a master's in psychology? I have um, essentially my first year of master's in psychology. Okay. How is it that According to a recent, what is it on Statistica site, they said $1.42 billion is the profit margin for the big pharma pharmaceutical industry as of now. That's the rough estimate. That doesn't sound right. That's way too low, Aaron. <laughs> I, I hate to correct you. That is way too low. That sounds like the profit for a small pharmaceutical, international pharmaceutical. And that's the reason why I threw up that number because it's always good to compare information. And you know, it depends on where you read things. You'll find different answers, different places. And some of it can be confirmation biased, even from companies themselves that 
don't want you to know the to know the accuracy. I would expect the big companies like Merck, Beringer, Ingelheim. Um, we're talking about companies that are invested in pharmaceuticals across both human, uh, animal, um, are also chemical companies. Uh, these guys, their their profit margins are way in the billions, tens of billions. Has to be. Has to be. Well. And right before you and I had a, a, a beginning of our conference, I went on to a site, it's called drugabuse.com. And there was an article that came out in August of this year. And as it said, is big pharma creating addiction purposely? And I want to know, based on your experience, not only studying psychology, but working with uh, uh, in the cannabis industry, do you feel that it is so much a conspiracy or do you feel that it is legit that we are making people addicted on purpose? Well, there's no doubt we can identify a number of companies. Uh, we just put them through uh, a legal process uh, here in the United States. And I think the EU did the same, uh, although their problem is much smaller than ours. It's clear the Sackler company and a number of these other companies who've been involved in this new wave of opiate provision, absolutely knew that their science was wrong, knew they were telling doctors and pharmacists lies, uh, and that these were being pushed down to consumers. And now we have, what is the number? Something like one in 300 people is dying every year because of an opiate overdose. I, I, it, you know, I, I've shared with you, it hit my family, it hit my cannabis medicine family. Um, a young man I call my son ended up addicted and died of fentanyl poisoning just a little over a year ago. Um, you know, so there, there's no safety from the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, your doctor's not going to keep you safe. Your nurse isn't going to keep you safe. Your pharmacist isn't going to keep you safe. The only thing that can keep you safe is stopping and thinking for half a second. My doctor just gave me a prescription for a drug right here that says maybe have it for me. And now that I've run out, I, I'm sensing that I need more. The minute that happens, you need to have the logic in your head that says, something disconnected here and something is wrong here and I need to ask questions. Anyone who's wide awake in the world needs to be looking around and asking questions critically. Is this needs to be happening? I see this happening with younger generations in such a delightful way as we are rethinking every single one of our social constructs in a more healthy way. We need to be rethinking some of our medical constructs in the same way. Well, and I also believe, too, that, you know, you particularly going back to the brain and how it's its response. If some people are more genetically prone to emotional dysregulation or even um, are more sensitive should we stigmatize that or should we look at it as these people are actually more vulnerable and we are only adding to the problem we're not solving it oh i think you know from our history together across about 15 or maybe even as much as 18 years now aaron uh, i'm all about trying to understand the experience of the other um even exactly. though i necessarily see them as other. I recognize that societally they might be seen in that way. And uh, some of my brothers and sisters need me, uh, a, a nice, solidly middle-class, white, professional, over-educated woman to uh, lend you a hand and maybe be your third leg to help you through this, this rough spot. Um, that's just me. So, of course, I believe that we shouldn't be shooting for a one-size-fits-all world. Um, our, our strength, our value, um, the best parts about us are our diversity. And that includes um, the random roll of a dice that you get just being born. Uh, the genetic soup that makes up the beginnings, the physicality of you. Ultimately, experientially, uh, that makes up more of that part. You're a great example of that, Aaron. Someone who got a, let's face it, a shit roll of the dice at the outset 
and has managed to experientially begin to transcend uh, the fact that you got a rough deal um, and, and learn to and grow from that. Um, if I can be an agent, if society can be an agent that empowers that type of growth, then that is one of our highest callings. Exactly. And, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, right now I work in uh, in the recovery community and I wanted to share this with you. There is a, uh, a non-binary individual that works at the uh, center where uh, I do peer support coaching. And I was waiting for one of my recoveries and was just sitting there kind of casually hearing a conversation. And it was so refreshing to hear someone come out and say this. They said, I cannot attend 12-step meetings. And my ears perked up and I just shot and looked. And they said, because we refuse based on our own past history with alcohol abuse and our sensitivity level to be a part of big pharma and we take cannabis for anxiety. They shame, stigmatize, and shun me when I go into those meetings. And so I can't go, and yet it's supposed to be a support system. So one of the things that I, have, I am realizing is it isn't so much that cannabis is necessarily a bad thing. It's like anything. Heck, alcohol can even be used medicinally as long for certain things like cold remedies, hot toddies, etc. What we are needing to realize is that even tools that are meant here on God's green earth can also be over abused. It isn't just a one size fits all platform. And, and I would like to know some of the stigma that you have experienced working in this field, trying to encourage alternate forms of homeopathic remedies. You absolutely hit one of the big ones. Um, and I run into this frequently uh, from my um, patients that are, are attempting to excise pharmacological agents from their life. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> and you also hit on one of the big, one of the big three. We always think about opiates when we think about addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I treat more benzo patients than opiates and cannabis is, is excellent helping both classes of pharmaceuticals and they're the patients that are addicted to them withdraw. I'm going to tell you, I'm hard pressed to know which one is the harder one. Benzodiazepines um, uh, or benzos, any benzos, um, they'll mess with your mind. Heroin opiates mess with your body, right? Uh, they're, they're very different, very different things. Um, and I ran into this where patients say, yes, I tried, I've tried 12 step programs, but I'm shamed because of cannabis. Again, this is the prohibitive point of view. And really, I think the only thing that solves it is a few generations of lived experience. And we're well into the first half of our generation of returning cannabis to the, the, the common vernacular again. Um, there is a new rise in a philosophy, um, a, a young woman who's a cannabis coach who was helping me for a time, um, introduced me to the concept and that's Cali Sober, which I don't know that I like the name all that much, but the idea is rethinking cannabis as a, as a natural herbal healing agent uh, that has a side effect uh, that is not illegitimate necessarily and recasting it as a healthy agent for living as opposed to an in, strictly an intoxicant. Now, can cannabis intoxicate? Yes, but you know what? I'm gonna suggest that um, probably 90, 95% of the product that I make, which is full extract cannabis oil, um, is not intoxicating because I use various blends of various cannabinoids, many of which are antagonist against THC and don't allow for the intoxication effect. So for instance, if you pair THC 
with CBD, it's a race to the CB1 receptor in the brain, which is where intoxication occurs if THC plugs in. If you get just as much CBD there as you do THC, it's going to dampen that effect, not just by half, meaning only half of the THC gets to plug in, but also CBD is a calming agent. What do we know is one of the biggest side effects of THC and one of the biggest downsides? It's the anxiety that can happen with it. So you're already dampening that effect. And I would suggest that maybe you feel the THC at a quarter or a third of its percent. Well, you know, and it's what interesting. So we do about valeria when it does the same thing for us, right? It's this prohibit, prohibitive thought that there's something wrong with cannabis. Well, and two, for instance, you know, you and I have tried to experiment with different mixtures or tinctures for myself. The thing that I have experienced is, and I can only speak for myself personally, what I have read and what I have experienced you don't really go through withdrawal symptoms. You can go out into la-la land. There is no question if you take too much of it. But the withdrawal side effects, it just slowly tapers off. And, you know, talking about stigma, I remember where, um, and you've always been very into social activism. And I remember you talking to me about this, you know, since even in the 70s, you were very uh, a politically aware and active person. On the show Maud, mm -hmm. uh, B. Arthur is trying to convince her daughter, Adrienne Barbeau, to get her some marijuana because she wants to protest and get arrested to make a statement. She doesn't want to smoke it, but she's trying to do it to make a statement. Mm -hmm. Yet, in the same breath, within a short time frame within that show, can't remember who it was, but one of, it might have been Carol, her daughter, she was having an anxiety and Maud opens up her change pouch and she goes, here, honey, take a Ritalin. And I'm like, oh my God. And that was, and I was even on Ritalin as a child. It is revert. It's basically speed. Right. It's yeah. basically speed, which and the withdrawal side effects of it. You lose appetite. You can become malnourished. Um, you can actually have more psychosomatic side effects, such as depression. There's no doubt about it, you know, and I think there's something interesting to point out here. Reaching over and um, I'm looking to see if I have a pill. Imagine me not having any pills here handy. Yeah. I take vitamins every day and occasionally antihistamine to keep my ear from fouling up. But um, yeah, I was going to say, it's easy. It's easy. Take a pill. Take a pill. It's easy. Don't, don't rehab your leg. I've been going through some real issues with my gait recently and dealing pain has entered my life in a significant way in the past few years. It would be easy for me to start eating pain pills. I wouldn't have to worry about it at all. Cannabis is relief, but I'm gonna tell you, it may or may not be as good a relief as that pill you can take. Cannabis, you kind of have to work with, but I visualize it this way. The natural world isn't as easy as um, this artificial world that we've created. You can imagine that winter's coming on here in Washington. It's a whole lot more work to stay dry and stay warm in Western Washington in winter, right? Than it is to just go in your apartment, turn the heat on. You know, that's living with nature. It's going to be a little bit more challenging. It requires more from you. Well, you know, you healing is the same. I could take pills and put this pain right out of my life, I think. But I wouldn't be rehabbing my leg and making myself ultimately better and stronger 
I'd merely be masking the issue. So I'm going to keep choosing cannabis and the fact that it takes a little bit of work on my part. Well, you know, they talk about whether, and you you mentioned reference to it in the Bible, whether one believes in spiritualism, and see, that's another thing too, not everybody believes in spiritualism, and, you know, moving that aside, the one thing that I have had to really learn, and it was something, we are not taught this in our society, whether it's our upbringing, whether it's because of uh, relationships that we have, whether it's at work, um, Friends that we choose, even, set surrender. Whatever it is you are trying to achieve takes the place of something else. Um, And I come from someone that has, and I'm trying to get myself out of it, uh, spending compulsivity issues. And the reason for that, because that's what I was taught. Um, But not only that, in our society, things feel safer than human beings. It's Mm. the same thing with... Uh, prescription medication, I feel. Yes, it will solve your problems. We are taught this, but yet how can we stigmatize people for having any sort of coping mechanisms when we as human beings, not we, maybe you and I ourselves, but other individuals either directly or indirectly profit from our own misery. So it's about surrender. It's about sacrifice and enlightenment. What is it you want? Do you want people? Do you want things? Do you want to do the work and have a little bit of pain? Or do you want to be pain-free and then have another problem on your hands? Exactly. I would also call that short versus long-term thinking. And America's biggest problem, instant gratification. We have very, very little um acceptance of the fact that what it takes to gratify us might take a hot second right you know so we've got zero down loans on cars and and uh instant coffee and you know you can go through your own um examples one of the things i was going through short versus long-term thinking it's cold today in western washington about 35 degrees that's Mm -hmm. not we're real used to my house is super cold today i live in a really old house i tell you what i could throw some kerosene around and light this thing up and boy would it ever be warm for a hot second literally and then i'd be colder than i was before you know i can choose to take oxycodone for this hip pain that i'm in And believe me, plenty of folks my age do thinking in a short-term way. Um, I'm kind of hoping that I'm going to be vital and not an addict by the time I'm 85, right? So I want to stay away from I'm not willing to burn the house down today to make my hip a little bit better, um, to make my um, anger issues over having been raped decades ago go away. Uh, I won't take a benzo to make that anxiety feel better. The thing that I think that people don't realize also part, you know, what was it? Someone said once um, the, the light enters where the wound is and something to that metaphor. And that sometimes, and I'm, and as sad as this is, you know, there is the whole thing about, well, you can't save everyone in this society. You can't, Yet part of saving others is asserting boundaries with those that are not good for you, asserting healthy boundaries for yourself, and waking up to the fact that we have become such a profit margin, not only by way of others, but by way of our own selves. And you talked about taking an oxycodone. When I had my last surgery, and this was in, when was this? Oh, it was in October of of, uh, 2000 and. 21. I fought adamantly, and I knew I was going to be in pain, to not take medication. Now, my mother, who has been in recovery for, she's been sober almost 10 years from alcohol. She just got off, thank you, she just got off all of her medication, or most of it, by saying to her doctor, no, I don't do this because she doesn't trust the industry. She went in to her doctor's appointment 
a couple months ago. And she was sitting there with her doctor. Her doctor is a very nice woman. Yet there is a red flag when your doctor said, so why is it we have you on this medication? Right. Right. Or was that And the patient is having to remind the doctor why they're on it. And yet they're the one with trauma, uh, with abuse of the pharmaceutical system, and still trying to advocate for themselves. So why are we stigmatizing people when we are recreating the, I don't even believe in addiction. I think it's a form of manipulation and abuse. That's, that's my personal opinion from Big Pharma. You don't believe in the chemicals? No, I, I think that, that addiction is just a facade. I think it's another form of stigma. I think it is a response to our environment. I'm afraid I'm probably going to have to disagree with you because we can look at chemical markers and um, malfunctions of the neuro and uh, and endocrine systems as a function of chemical addiction. Now, I, I think there's a variety of addictions that are strictly up here, but there still has to be some type of neurological trigger there. For instance, I know people who are addicted to exercise. They literally exercise to their detriment, right? I know people who are literally addicted to water, who overconsume water to their detriment. It right? is a form of individual genetics and human behavior and mass marketing all combined. Yeah, and, and, and plus a need within yourself that is not being served constantly right? So you find something else that serves it. And it may be a, um, I'm trying to think of a placebo, but it's not that it's a, it's a replacement function, right? It's not really serving uh, the need, but it's scratching an itch somewhere else that makes you quit thinking about that need for half a second. I'm going to introduce you and the, and the crew to someone. Come, Indy, come. Here, up, up. Nope, nope, come here. Come. Who is that? Up, up, up. up here she is. This is who keeps bumping the camera, and occasionally I have to bend down for it. That's Indiana Bones, my little Canada dog. Indiana, <laughs> oh, how cute. Yeah. Play on words. Indeed, and, and she's a rescue just like almost all the other people in my life. <laughs> You noticed I classified her as a person. So please forgive the bumping on the camera. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, not at all. Besides, um, I think animals are a little bit more tolerable than people sometimes too. Would... I, I prefer the company of animals, quite frankly. <laughs> because it, you know what? And I, I mentioned this to uh, actually my, my uh, boss at my recovery coach center he is going through slowly the loss of a partner who is in the beginning stages of dementia. And then his dog is diagnosed with, I think it's cancer. And I said, you know what I find? Animals are better at giving unconditional love. They're the experts at unconditional love. They teach us. We don't teach them. <laughs> Truth. I do want to get back to, though, uh, particularly touching on, um, you mentioned opioids. How many people do you deal with or have dealt with that are in recovery from whether it's Dexatrin, Ritalin, opioids, you name it, that have switched to cannabis? That's a hard number. Do you want to know the ones that are currently with me in practice or the total because many folks find their way and then they don't need to deal with me you know across state lines and through the mail and, and so you've had people that are slowly transitioning out of and into yeah exactly i'm going to say at this point i'm probably somewhere near 500 that i have either counseled provided meds to um and or still provide meds to that have had issues with either benzos or opiates. And I have a couple of strict rules about it, which, you know, 
put people off at times. Uh, again, America's lack of ability to delay gratification. When folks make that decision, they want the easy, fast answer. So frequently they will reject the natural path because it's longer, because just like all natural healing, it takes more effort on your part. And they're wanting something like these rapid detoxes or um, a program that puts them into a controlled and pharmaceutically managed detox. Um, so I understand, I, you know, it's, it, it's good and I'm always happy to talk to people about it, but I, I tell them in advance, this is a long process that involves calibration uh, we're going to work with a compounding pharmacy. I require you to notify your doctor and anyone I know who goes cold turkey stops getting help from me with cannabis. That's dangerous. You'll kill yourself that way. Well, and um, you know, as a matter of fact, my, my, my boss, he, we were talking about different centers for uh, uh, detox centers. And there is one here in Seattle. And I had read about this even before I became a peer coach. And it's absolutely barbaric. And it's called Shikshadal. And what they do is they, oh, I yeah. they will make you drink tons and tons of alcohol so that you associate negativity with the induced vomiting. And he himself has said, it's one of the worst things that you can do to a human being. It's to You're make some. so happy to hear this, Aaron. They have closed Shikshadal when uh it's it's a very recent thing uh, because with, of some of their practices nope nope i think it's just finally fallen out of favor you know we've gotten past these barbaric treatments for what society considers aberrant it um, is almost as if you might as well have a narcissistic parent yelling at you and giving you a bottle and telling you, know, you to my dad tried this with smoking when i was 16. He found out I was smoking cigarettes and he gave me a pack and says, we're smoking them all today, Kathy. <laughs> and he didn't mean today. He meant one after another. <laughs> this is an old school, right? I mean, we've seen this with how to, how to beat the queer out of you. Um, we've seen this with how to take care of uppity women. You know, I'll leave the race out of it. There's been all kinds of horrific treatments and slowly as a society, we're getting better at this right now. I believe it's a national law that you can't do, have conversion centers. Is that right? Or did we just finally pass a law in Washington? That I am not aware of. Yeah, it is either Washington or national Washington. There are no more conversion centers allowed or no payments allowed for them. Perhaps that's it. Insurance. Well, and you know, you talk about even like beating the queer out of you. Um, again, since I, I'm really into anthropology, studying uh, what a lot of Babylonians believed, they did not believe in gender or sexual identity. They believed in that human beings are souls and that mm -hmm. we are a product of our environment. They even believed that um, that queer people held um, special places of hierarchy in society. They encouraged same-sex relationships. We don't? <laughs> <laughs> it's just we do. Telling folks what we do in our bedrooms or not. You no. Know? But We've always been leaders. Exactly. I mean, heck, what is it, friend? Are you familiar with friend Leibowitz? She even said that in the 80s, she saw so much of our culture die because of the AIDS epidemic that we lose a lot of our integrated culture. We would not have fine foods. We wouldn't have art culture. We wouldn't have theater without a lot of queer people. So, and I believe that also- That just wouldn't have any style. <laughs> that's right. Well, and also, and I believe that trauma can make people more empathic and more creative. It's a, it's a very- double two sides of a coin um it can make you more expressive and understanding but i wanted to get back to um you talked about shikshadal and how it had closed and even with what your father had done you know trying to get you to smoke a whole, whole pack and that too 
Huh? Let me check that. Just do a quick internet search on them. I'll go right to the hospital. It's out there on Ambom. Ah, yep. Schick Shadle is no longer providing behavioral health care services as of June 30th, 2022. So there's happy news. Schick Shadle is gone. Now, I would like to know your, your thought on since you have switched to working in the cannabis, I consider cannabis a form of natural pharmaceutical, not chemical pharmaceutical, if you will. Right. Um, how do you feel? Do you feel that if people are uh, regulated on cannabis, that they are more apt to be able to deal with their problems from a psychological perspective and that uh, big pharma only masks, it does not solve the problem, particularly if there is a lot of integrated trauma or past abuse. Sorry, adjusting my camera there, it got knocked again. Um, first, let me let me give you the word the, the words you were struggling for and that is the herbal pharmacopoeia. Okay. Uh, how we refer to our herbal um, healing traditions as they are written down. Now, let's be also very clear that herbal healing is a folkloric art, right? Uh, so much of it is not written down. Um, there's that part of it. And, and, and then the, your further question was associated with the fact that we're not you know, it, can I maybe ask you to restate that the second part of that question real quick? Sure. Um, actually I can reformulate it a little bit. I guess a better thing would be to ask, how is it, do you feel, you know, one of the things that I brought up is giving you that statistical number of 1.42 billion earlier. How do you feel that we are supposed to even trust statistics of recovery if it if there is a profit margin that is being manipulated even for statistical research it's cognitive dissonance within itself don't you think i agree i suggest you don't trust it <laughs> it's one of the things that i encourage folks when they're doing their research um and lots of folks come to me and tell me oh i've read these papers you know meaning peer-reviewed scientific papers and i'm like who funded those papers you know, does it make a difference? Yeah, it makes a difference. You know, if we're talking about pharmaceutical companies and their profit motives, uh, putting up a case for the fact that cannabis is not necessarily effective, uh, trust and believe the researchers that they hire to do this bring some confirmation bias into the study. We see it constantly. Right now, if you go out to school, scholar.google.com okay. which is, if 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 you don't know if your listeners don't know this is the best place in the world it's access to all of the peer reviewed papers out there on any subject google has done a marvelous job of amassing this to where you can at least read the abstract if not the whole paper so when we look out there uh, and we we search cannabis plus anything Prostate cancer, hyperactivity, uh, heart problems, pick, pick cannabis and anything. And the first thing you're going to find is just a list of government-sponsored papers. And how do I know it's sponsored? You'll see NIDA, N-I-D-A, National Institute of Drug Abuse, is a huge sponsor of papers on cannabis. Um, NIM is a huge um, sponsor, mental health. Um, you know, all of the government ABCs of health, uh, HHS is out there. And what do they want to prove? They want to back up their point that there's a reason for prohibition of cannabis. So always know who's funding your paper and keep that in mind as you look at results. Well, and you know, as a matter of fact, when I was working in retail before I got out in April 2020, 
one of the big issues that we are having now, particularly in Washington state, um, and as a matter of fact, my landlord slash roommate, he used to work for Safeway for what, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Yes. That's a great union job. Well, and he noticed that, and he's all, he was always very politically active that Washington up until X amount of years ago, what was it? 10, 15, the liquor industry, what it was regulated here in Washington. You could only buy hard liquor at liquor stores. Right. Now it was very different in California where I came from. They started, it, you could not even buy liquor in grocery stores. I think until the mid to late eighties, something around there. And what the problem though is speaking of there being such a stigma with cannabis here, we are knocking it and trying to still put forth the pharmaceutical industry. But yet if we're also trying to help people recover with alcohol dependency, we are making it much more easier and accessible. It's a liability issue for people who work retail because we cannot stop theft. We are losing money. Um, and it's, it is not as regulated. So you have buildings per square foot that are three times larger with less amount of people trying to do the work of people. People are coming in, stealing it. So, and yet you don't see that as much in terms of, I mean, I remember hearing about robberies and such when I lived in Renton a couple of years ago. The cannabis store got broken into. But that is much more, I feel, uh, heavily regulated, almost to the point of overkill where we have become so lax with the alcohol industry here in Washington that it's creating more of an epidemic. I wanted to know how you feel about that. Absolutely. And again, that's just more of, I, I call our legalization in Washington Prohibition 2.0. Um, we basically cracked the door about that wide on it and said, okay, you can have cannabis, but you only have 10 milligrams per serving. Okay, you can sell cannabis, but here's the list. And I think regulations are great. But let's be clear, consumers are great at defeating regulations. And what a lot of these regulations do is simply put that onus on the business owner uh, to create an extra cost that the consumer has to bear. Um, I love folks who tell my son how much he's making as a cannabis store owner when they see, for instance, his sales numbers. And, and I'll be clear, um, if you have a store that's not booking sales in the millions, um, you probably need to look at where it's located and how you're running it. Uh, because that's that's a pretty typical gross sales number. But cannabis is taxed at effectively 90%, 90%. There's no other product that is taxed, like that, right? Hey, my dog's not very well trained. <laughs> okay. Um. But, and, you know, and, and it's so funny, too, because one of the problems that I saw, speaking of, you know, our crisis with dependency, when I lived in my car, you would see uh, theft happen left and right. You would see a lot of homeless people with, obviously, you could tell that it was stolen from a store because the devices were still on, you know, device theft caps were still on the liquor bottles. And yet, what... I have been realizing is that is in terms of cannabis, for many people, the dependency is not as great to where it's like, oh my God, I'm jonesing. I have to have this. It is very different as opposed to the opioid uh, epidemic, uh, the alcohol epidemic. Um, but yet, I feel personally that we are over-regulating cannabis because we realize, oh, there is a profit margin in it. And it also, the more we can control it, the more we can create a, a continuing dependency on big pharma without losing the profit margin. 
And this is one of the reasons that the medical cannabis community split from the regulated community in Washington and essentially said, okay, we've been outlaws all this time. I guess we'll just go back to that status. Not particularly worried about it as, as our populace continues to become more and more canna-confident and canna-competent, right? They, um, it's, it's one of the reasons I've chosen to become an outlaw. I don't believe that there's a jury that's gonna convict me for helping veterans with their PTSD or cancer and children with their cancer, with their parents' approval. Uh, good luck, you know, I've said for years, you think you, the public wants you to take money and try me for that in the state of Washington? Um, good luck. I don't think you can find a jury who will convict me. And if I'm that wrong that you can, well then maybe I do fucking belong in jail. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, one of the woman, uh, women that I met during my uh, training back in August to be a peer coach, she taught in prisons for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. She's been in recovery. She and I actually are both from Santa Cruz, California. And she said the one thing that she has noticed, and she and I were talking about this, is that when you penalize people for petty crimes you are reinstating trauma and subjecting people to even more um outlandish behavior because based on but what's going to happen you know being in prison for having a teeny bit of grams of marijuana you're going to come out more of a damaged person chances are than when you went in um and yet I feel that we are more encouraging people to use and have a dependency, whether it's on big pharma, whether it's on alcohol consumption, um, by being arrested and penalizing people for this. And yet, it's so funny, we look at cannabis as more of an offense than abuse of alcohol. Isn't that interesting? Sure. It's not corporately sanctioned. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's you know, as we've been beating around this issue during this whole interview, that's a part of the problem. Um, what do you feel needs to happen to get things changed from your work and experience in this, uh, from a legislative perspective? We need to re-engage the populace um, to understand that you've hit upon a couple of wins. There are a couple of big wins with legalization. My grandkids are never going to spend a day ever worrying about going to jail for minor possession of cannabis, right? Probably even major possession of cannabis unless they've got it all dimed up and ready to sell out on a quarter, corner. Uh, it's just not going to happen. That is a huge win. We gotta quit ruining young people's lives over a roach. Right? Well, and you know, what was it years ago? Um, Dionne Warwick was arrested in the airport and she denied that it was hers and it claimed it turns out that it was. She has glaucoma. Now, as opposed to taking drugs for it, she, she decided to take cannabis uh -huh. because it, it works. It yeah. reduced the swelling. And yet and she was arrested 40, and had to do community service for it. Yeah. And for 40 years, that was our only legitimate medical use. And people actually got cannabis from the federal government, from the uh, uh, experimental plot down at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, but the, the joke was it's so shitty a weed. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm letting my, I'm not regulating my language very well anymore. Well, you know um, what? It's okay. This is on audio. So we can go whoop, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's such crappy weed that Dr. Sue Sisley, who was the first doctor to gain FDA approval for a um, medical trial of cannabis. And it's been about 10 years ago that she gained approval for the first four or five years of that. She was in this legal conundrum she didn't want to use the product from you miss because 
it wasn't equivalent to what her veterans in California were using for their PTSD. She saw it as a bait and switch kind of product that would give her no verifiable scientific results, right? <laughs> so there's the weird irony of the FDA approved cannabis. But there is absolutely no doubt we have still a social battle to fight, which is the re-engagement of our populace to understand they gave us cheap joints and arrest protection while giving this industry, and it hasn't happened yet, so there's still time to change this, but the feds are getting ready to give this industry to the fortune companies. And I wanted to touch on something because we're almost out of time. You mentioned something about, um, you know, at the end of prohibition, wasn't it in the after uh, the stock market crash in the early 30s when marijuana, because in the 20s, marijuana, like heroin, was used even like cocaine on a more of a low scale, just casual recreational basis. And it wasn't until Reefer Madness came out that there was this big hoopla and people started going, oh my God. I mean, even when I was in, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, When I was a child, we had, well, that's a whole other story. Uh, Dare, drug abuse resistance education. Oh yeah. Not work by the way. Um, They showed us these stories about how horrible you would be if you took marijuana. What they did not educate is about the big pharma industry. And what what do you feel about how uh, the end of the Roaring Twenties at the beginning of the Depression changed the stigma of cannabis? You know, I think there's a number of overlapping social concerns mm-hmm. going in the late 20s, in the early 30s. Um, You've got, um, there's no doubt, prohibition is always wrong. You cannot legislate social behavior, period. But we were just finishing up prohibition um, and the nation was largely divided. And it was, I'm going to say probably a pretty good thing that we went through prohibition because there's no doubt drinking went way down. And that's a good thing. If you look at the statistics, America needed a stick in the spoke of alcohol consumption because we were quickly, well, we were a nation of drunks, you know, high functioning alcoholics, largely. Um, You are absolutely right. Cannabis, especially what I make, full extract of cannabis oil, was the single most prescribed product in apothecaries at this time. Much like camphor oil. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, And much like, you're absolutely right. Heroin was easily available. One of the first cough remedies I remember my parents using on me as a small child, 1959, 1960, it was a preparation called turpenhydrate and it had tincture of morphine in it, right? That'll make you stop coughing. It might make you stop breathing too if you take too much of it. Uh, But this is how how integrated, how much our drug system has changed. It wasn't until this interim period that we started moving away from largely herbal remedies and plant-based remedies to pharmacological and chemical concoctions that were designed to replace them. For instance, white willow bark becomes aspirin, right? Um, My dad, as you know, was a pharmaceutical chemist Um, He actually worked with Abbott Labs on creating and documenting the actual chemical formulation of aspirin. uh, Which is probably the only uh, thing that is an organic compound now that you can buy on on in pharmacies. Anything else is synthetic. Well, and nowadays aspirin is synthetic too. Everything is a synthetic representation. Why is this? It's for good manufacturing procedures. Again, all a part of the industrial age. And it's cheaper. A part of standardization. It's cheaper. You don't have to raise willow bark. You just mix up a few chemicals that you bought down the road at Monsanto. Right? I wanted to uh, end with uh, who is it that you can educate people on 
that are trying to pass bills to um, remove some of the uh, the stigma, and not only that, but the um, I don't want to say incarceration, the um, penalties of being caught with marijuana and also to make sure that it is not so, um, how shall I say, not that I already said stigmatized, but um, accepted in Washington state. I believe, well, first off, you know, there's nothing you can do to remove stigma per se. Mm -hmm. That's a societal movement, right? You can uh, educate, but you can't change. Bingo. Uh, let me let me use a great analogy. Um, you and I have been a part of the the gaining of queer rights. Um, we're talking about the fastest social movement this country has ever seen, right? And the reason was how how did that happen so fast? Because I came out to my parents and said, look, that's great that you got your own feelings about this, but I'm queer and I'm here to stay. And your choice is you get to decide whether to love me or not. I'm you set a boundary. Self-love. Um, and what you decide merely enhances your life. This is the same conversation we've got to have with cannabis, right? We have to destigmatize it ourselves. And how do we do that? By ripping off that closet door and shouting to the world, I found a better way to manage my pain relief. I found a better way to manage my ADHD. I found a better way to treat my child's cancer. And I am so proud of my brave parents whose children are healthily engaging with the world either while they have cannabis or while they have behavior problems or some type of physical problem. One of the neatest young activists I know is a fellow named Colton Turner. Uh, he almost died from IBS um, and his parents moved to Colorado from Illinois so that he could access um, cannabis oil and he has turned into a marvelous activist and is out and proud about the fact I started doing this as a child because my parents were gonna lose me if I didn't, he's of age now. Um, but opening those stories up and shining the light of day on them is what removes stigma because now we look at Colton, we're like, look at this strapping young 24 year old and he almost died with the allopathic treatments yet cannabis saved him. Look at this child who had a brain tumor and medicine just destroyed his brain, but he survived because of cannabis. Um, these are the stories that become our candles as we march forward and try to shine light through prohibition, hopefully with the hope that we can all grow cannabis in our backyard or choose to go to a drugstore and buy CBD or CBG or THC. Um, but that we have the power to do it ourselves. Same as you grow a tomato. You know, I, one of the things you said is that, you know, you cannot change stigma because that is integrated into each individual. And yet at the same time, you know, it's very much like how you were using the metaphor of growing a tomato. We give so much of our power away when we realize it isn't that, and again, stigma, 12 step recovery, uh, they say we don't have we don't have power within ourselves. That's not true. We do. We just haven't found it. We all have it within us. We all anything in this world is built on a surge of frequency of power, and it's how much you um, choose to allow that power to execute you, or you plug into it. You know, it's like an electrical appliance. If you do not like the way something is behaving or it's malfunctioning, disconnect it. Great. Yeah, it's shocking how many people don't understand they don't have to answer that phone that's ringing. <laughs> Kat, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this with me and educating uh, people. It's always good to have feedback. And, you know, and I think the, the thing to note on a closing note is that 
one of the ways that stigma four, um, more natural and homeopathic ways people can uh, help their pain, trauma, or even work with, you know, psychological effects. It isn't just by living vicariously through experiences of others and seeing the damage, what we are doing in our society. Sometimes you almost have to experience um, manipulation from others onto you before you take a stance and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, sometimes we're pushed to our breaking point before we find that power within us. And then we're shocked at how much we have. Absolutely. I think frequently, that's it. Can I take a moment and tell folks how to find me, Erin? Absolutely. You can find me on Facebook. I'm Grandma Cat. That's cat with a C. You can also go directly to my website, which is GrandmaCatExtracts.com. You can find me on Instagram, Grandma Cat extracts. Kat, thank you so much. It has been my privilege and pleasure. As always, Erin, you are dear to me. I'll talk to you soon, sweetie. Take good care. And thank you to all of our listeners. Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye now. Oops. Hi, baby.